It's Tuesday. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parents. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Nonsense, the show, episode 312. This is the Ramones with Blitzkrieg. Bye! Welcome to Nonsense, the show, episode 312. Um, I don't really have a title for this one yet. It might be Question Everything. It might be You're Accepted. It might be something completely different. As always, I am the host of this circus of the absurd and the insane and the hilarious and the interesting. My name is Captain Nick. I am the disgraced third count of Buena Vista. I'm a very strange man, and there is uh, every reason to believe that I am an alien from outer space. This is my own personal broadcast to the world. This is nonsense, the show. I got a good one for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Um, 
as you obviously know, because we've mentioned it several times and there's been long droughts between episodes, it's been fucking hard to write this show this year. And this one I decided to kind of put together last minute. I had uh, a little bit of inspiration and I went with it and I feel good about it. I had a lot of fun writing this episode, which I have not done in quite a while. Um, so I'm kind of hoping a little bit of the magic is back. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, we'll spend a little time updating you on life and what I have going on. But before we do, let's run down tonight's agenda. Um, I got a good one for you. We got a whole bunch of music. I'm going to try to drag this bitch out because I want to have some fun with it. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, Ferris, you know what? Knock it off. Chill. Jesus, these fucking people. Um, it's going to be, I'm going to try to drag it out because I want to enjoy this. I'm going to savor it. So we're going to have songs in between every segment. Uh, I tried to pick kind of a diverse mix tonight. Let me take a look at the list that I settled on. We already heard Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones. Fantastic hit. Feeds right into the Captain's Film Institute. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit. Uh, well, I'm not going to spoil it, but um, I've got a little bit of like late 80s, early 90s. I got a little bit of fucking pop. Uh, a little bit of punk, you know, but like fun punk that you'll like. I got a little bit of rock and roll, and then I got a little bit of Macklemore. It's going to be fun. Uh, stories. We're going to start off with a conspiracy theory that I've heard about a couple of times, and I found a post on Reddit that I thought was interesting enough to share with you, so I just copy and pasted it, and I'm going to read it to you tonight. Uh, the question that I pose to you, the listeners of Nonsense the Show, is this. Is Finland real? We'll find out in segment number one. Segment number two tonight is going to be the world's most incredible taxidermist, a man by the name of Carl Akeley. This is a, 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 a segment that I put together, I don't know, like a month, two, three, four months ago. I don't remember. I read it very briefly before uh, I started the show, but I decided I'm going to learn along with you guys. I don't remember much of the story, but what little I saw, I'm intrigued. I'll tell you all about Carl Akeley, who uh, we'll call him the father of modern taxidermy. Hmm? Uh, after that, we will talk about the Little Man Mine and the Pedro Mountain Mummy. This is an interesting uh, sort of uh, Western American uh, mystery, folklore, legend, myth. You're going to dig it. Uh, we'll close things out with the uh, 47th entry into the Captain's Film Institute, which, of course, is my repository of my favorite films in the history of ever. These are the films that, to me, Make movies fun. Uh, we are not judging them based on critical acclaim. We are not judging them based on box office revenue. Revenue. Words are hard. It's getting tough early. Uh, we are not judging them on anything outside of how much do I enjoy them and how much do I think they embody something fun about filmmaking. That's it. Uh, tonight. 2006, Justin Long, vehicle known as Accepted. I've probably seen this movie 500 to 1,000 times, and that's not an exaggeration. I love this film. Um, so, we've got music, we've got stories, we've got ghosts, we've got rum. There's all kinds of other things involved. Um, how are you guys feeling? I don't care. I'm feeling fucking good. Let's do this shit, huh? How do you uh, feel about learning a new conspiracy theory? There is a conspiracy about the nation of Finland, which states that the nation of Finland is not, in fact, a real nation. Not only is it not a real nation, but there is actually no landmass there at all. And the space between Sweden and Russia <clears throat> is, in fact, 
just a big-ass stretch of empty ocean. Now, I realize that this is a notion which, on its surface, seems ridiculous, but that is why the conspiracy works. And it's why people are afraid to speak out against the existence of Finland. So, I would ask you to approach the evidence that I put forward here with an open mind. Finland was first created sometime during the Cold War between Russia and the West. It was also around this time that environmentalism and the idea of preserving our planet was really taking off. And it is due to both of these things that two of the main players in the Finland conspiracy came to work closely with each other. Those, of course, being Russia and Japan. Japanese-Soviet relations have always been shaky at best, but they were also incredibly secretive. Even as early as 1925, Japan and the Soviet Union had secret deals with each other regarding fishing rights between the two countries. Hmm? With the Soviet Union giving much of its fishing rights to Japan with seemingly no explanation as to why. These secretive treaties and alliances continued right up until just before the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, a man by the name of Gorbachev made trips to Japan months before the fall of the Soviet Union, stating the entire time how the relations between them were improving, even when Soviet relations with the rest of the world were worsening. In fact, the entire past 100 years of Japanese-Russian relations bring up many unanswered questions. For instance, why, at the height of World War II, were the battles between these two countries minimal, despite being on opposing sides? Well, the answer is simple. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. We're not getting to answers yet. <laughs> oh, shit. Sip a rum for Captain Nick. Mm. Of course, as I often am, I am drinking bamboo rum tonight. Um, I'm going to have to restock soon, but don't worry about that. That's none of y'all's problems. Um... Let's go back to the questions. Why, at the height of World War II, were the battles between these two countries minimal, despite being on opposing sides? Why did Japan sign a peace treaty with Russia in 1941, just months before their allies, Germany, went to war with Russia? Why were relations between Japan and Russia always good throughout the Cold War, despite the major geopolitical differences between the countries and the close geographical positions that you think would cause some kind of tension? The answer, of course, is simple. Both nations shared a common secret. A common asset that worked in both of their favors. That asset was, of course, Finland. It's unclear when Finland was first thought up. Some say it was during the Cold War, and others say it was as far back as the 1920s. But the necessity of Finland is quite simple. Japan can fish in the region of ocean between Sweden and Russia without worry for environmental repercussions. After all, nobody's going to expect fishing regulations to be broken in a place where everyone thinks there's a landmass, now will they? And in return, Russia gets a percentage of the fish to distribute amongst their populace. This is a simple case of fishing the Finnish Sea, transporting it across Russia, uh, this was, of course, the real reason for the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway, by the way, uh, and then shipping it from the eastern Russian coast to Japan under the disguise of, quote, Nokia products. This is why, of course, Nokia is the largest Finnish company, and it is also why Japan is the largest importer of Nokia products, despite the fact that very few people in Japan own Nokia phones. Now, 
as you hear all of this rambling genius, you may think to yourself, self, there are clearly some unanswered questions to this conspiracy. And I would like to answer uh, yourselves' questions by saying, don't worry, I'm about to answer them. What about Finnish people? Are all of the Finnish people in on the conspiracy? The answer to that is, of course, no. People from, uh, people from Finland genuinely believe they're from Finland. In reality, they're from small towns on either the eastern part of Sweden, the western part of Russia, or the northern part of Estonia. What about all of Finland's other exports other than Nokia products? Well... Finland's three biggest and three most well-known areas of industry are oil, tech, and software. The oil is gathered in offshore platforms where the rest of us believe the landmass of Finland is. Again, the Japanese get to avoid pesky regulations in this respect because nobody expects any water to be there. The tech companies have already been explained with the Nokia information and the software companies can easily redirect their IP address through the Finnish sea. As for other Finnish exports, well, claiming Santa comes from your country isn't a viable way to get people to believe in it. What about Helsinki? It's an enormous city on the world stage. Well, yeah, of course it is, but it's not located in Finland. It's actually located in eastern Sweden. It's not like the people flying there are going to notice. But what about everywhere else in Finland, you may ask? There's a lot to it, and it can't all be made up. Well, 99% of Finland is forest. A lot of it doesn't need to be accounted for when actually addressing Finnish geography. And that's all we need to say about that because that's obviously very clear. (laughs) This is so silly. Why do other countries go along with it? Well, at first it was a sign of goodwill between Western countries and the Soviet Union. It was a bargaining chip that could be played, but Finland has since evolved into something much, much more. It's an idealistic placeholder for what countries should aspire to. No real country could so consistently place first in education, healthcare, gender equality, literacy rates, national stability, being the least corrupt government in the world, and freedom of press. It's a concept for countries and people to aspire to. But that's where the problems about Finland's existence is disputed. No country in the world can possibly be that good. Duh. Why did they choose the name Finland? Well, originally it was made for fishing. What do fish have? Fins. Thus, Finland. It's easy. What about the language? Well, look up the similarities between Japanese, uh, the Japanese and Finnish languages. It may surprise you how similar they are, which is weird considering the vast distances between them. You may be thinking to yourself, self, I'm Finnish. And this attack on my people and culture is insulting. Well, listen. We're not insulting your Finnish people or your Finnish culture. I don't even deny that there is a Finnish culture. When you have a collective of a few million people identifying as Finnish, then of course a culture will be built around it. I'm simply saying that the landmass of Finland isn't actually there. It doesn't mean there can't be a culture or an identity of being Finnish, however. This is an enormous conspiracy to keep secret. How could nobody else have realized it? Well... Other people have realized it. But imagine the ridiculousness of the statement, I don't believe Finland exists. Even if we did have undeniable proof of something put in front of us, we would still hold the opinion that most of our friends, family, and acquaintances hold to not disrupt the social convention. It's part of the human condition. 
What about GPS and satellite? Well, it's manipulated. It's forged. In the parts of Estonia, Sweden, and Russia that are allocated as, quote, Finnish zones, the GPS locations are changed to match that of Finland. Satellite images are just straight up forged. It's Photoshop. And so, as we finish answering those ridiculous questions, challenging this obvious conspiracy, which is not a conspiracy at all, it's truth. Um, What is the truth of the matter? Well, you'll have to do your own research. Go visit that part of the world yourself to see it with your own eyes. (laughs) Um. That story is a little bit silly as I read it, and it's it's just kind of fun. But I I miss when conspiracies were fun and stupid like that, and like birds aren't real. I miss the lizard people uh, conspiracies. I miss the Elvis is still alive conspiracies. I miss those. Once once conspiracies kind of dove into the political mainstream, they just weren't fun anymore. So. Uh, I would like to know what conspiracies do you know about that are fun and harmless, like the Finland isn't real, like birds aren't real. Apparently things not being real is sort of like a big conspiracy deal. Uh, Maybe Bigfoot not being real is a conspiracy. I don't know. Um, If you have conspiracies that you want to tell me about, reach out to me at beardandbones at gmail.com. Beard and Bones on the Instagram. Or, of course, you can leave a comment. Uh, under any post you see of mine or just uh, shoot me a call or a text most of you guys know me and if you don't you want my number you know how to find me fucking ask for it huh and while we're at it ladies and gentlemen if you enjoy the fine entertainment content here at nonsense the show i humbly ask you to seek out patreon.com backslash nonsense the show throw us a couple of bucks an episode you only pay when i post When I record an episode, put it up on the internet, you will be charged however much you choose to pay me. Um, About an hour-long episode, what would you pay for an hour's worth of entertainment? That is up to you to figure out. Patreon.com backslash nonsense this show. It buys me illicit drugs. It buys me me chocolate and candy and gummy bears and Taco Bell. Sometimes I get to go on dates with pretty girls. But mostly it buys me Taco Bell and candy bars and gummy bears. Okay, thanks so much. Love you, bye. That's all we got for that segment. Let's go ahead. (laughs) Listen, this fucking show is called Nonsense for a reason, and if you didn't know that coming in, I don't know what you are doing here. Coming up next on our playlist is Kim Wilde. It's time for us to hear a little bit about the kids in America. I will see you in uh, about three minutes for the next segment of the show.
the kids in America. That was Kim Wilde, the kids in America. I fucking love that song. Um, I wouldn't put it at the top of very many lists, but like every time I hear it, it makes me happy. So that's why it's on the show today. Oh, you're crazy. I'm not crazy. Relax, Seinfeld. It's a great song. I just don't like it. You don't like it? This sort of thing ain't my bag, baby. Fair enough. Okay, moving on. Speaking of the kids in America, let's go to our next segment. This is the world's most incredible taxidermist, Carl Akeley. Now, again, this is a segment I wrote, I don't know, weeks or months ago, um, compiled from I don't know how many different sources, and uh, I have no idea really what it says. So we are going to go on this ride together. Um, So strap in. Here we go. Carl Akeley was an artist, photographer, inventor, uh, conservationist, and the preeminent taxidermist of his day. But after he killed a leopard by thrusting his right hand into the animal's mouth and choking it to death with his left, he was forever to be remembered chiefly for that 1896 encounter. In less lurid chronicles, Akeley is celebrated as the father of modern taxidermy, the man who first applied scientific rigor and a sculptor's technique to the craft of stuffing animals for exposition. Akeley was among the first to place his specimens in realistic dioramas for the leading American museums of the day. He called these exhibitions groups, and he populated them with scores of animals that he killed personally, with great efficiency and occasional bouts of self-doubt. He was quoted as saying, what I, uh, while I have found but little enjoyment in shooting any kind of animal, I confess that in hunting elephants and lions under certain conditions, I have always felt that the animal had sufficient chance in the game to make it something like a sporting proposition. On the other hand, much of the shooting that I have had to do in order to obtain specimens for museum collections has had none of this aspect at all and has made me feel a great deal like a murderer. He wrote in his 1923 autobiography in Brightest Africa. The book's title is a rebuke to the prevailing view of Africa at the time. Men have spoken of darkest Africa, but the dark chapters of African history are only now being written by the inroads of civilization. He wrote after a 1905 train journey across half of the continent, from Cape Town to what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. He spotted no game to speak of until reaching the Lualba River in central Congo, where in five days he saw only a few antelope, half a dozen elephants, and a handful of hippos. The continent was being hunted out, its great species seemingly destined for extinction. This at a time when photography was a clumsy science and today's high-resolution video was unimaginable even to a visionary such as Akeley. In his view, the only way to preserve the memory of Africa's noble beasts was to shoot and stuff as many as he could before they were gone, as contradictory as that may sound. But where did he come from? How did he end up in this place? Well, he was born in 1864 on a farm in western New York. As a boy, he was obsessed with nature and developed a keen interest in taxidermy. At 16, he borrowed a book on the subject and stuffed enough birds to feel justified in having business cards printed stating that he practiced artistic taxidermy in all its branches. When he was 19, after the crops were in, he took a train to Rochester and presented himself to the leading taxidermist of the day, Henry Ward of Ward's Natural Science Establishment. It's quite a grandiose name, isn't it? Very dignified. The... uh, the (laughs) 
<laughs> the entrance to the place was made from the jaws of a sperm whale, and when Akeley arrived, Professor Ward looked up from his breakfast and barked, What do you want? Akeley presented the card, and Ward hired him on the spot. Eleven hours a day for three dollars and fifty cents a week. I discovered a boarding house where I could get a room and my meals for four dollars a week, Akeley later wrote, and on this basis I began to learn the art of taxidermy and run through my slender resources. The young man was soon disillusioned by Ward's crude methods. To stuff a deer, for example, Ward would wire its bones, hang it upside down, and fill the body with straw until it would hold no more. Ward took little interest in Akeley's higher ambitions. When Akeley asked to make a more realistic plaster mount for a zebra, Ward insisted he work on the project only at night, which he did. But Ward stuffed the zebra in the old style anyway and then fired Akeley for sleeping on the job. Six months later, Ward begged Akeley to come back, and he did. The taxidermist he'd been working with in New York was even more backward than the professor. Akeley's last job at Ward's was to stuff the world-famous circus elephant Jumbo, who had been struck and killed by a locomotive in 1885. I believe we uh, talked about Jumbo way back in Season 2 of Nonsense uh, with the P.T. Barnum episode. Uh, Jumbo, uh, the word you know as Jumbo, came from this elephant. Akeley and William Crickley uh, built a reinforced frame so that Jumbo's mounted remains could continue to travel by rail with P.T. Barnum's circus. The project gained Akeley a certain amount of recognition in the field, and in 1886, he secured a position with the Milwaukee Public Museum. He worked there for six years, refining his revolutionary approach to taxidermy. He sculpted realistic clay models of the creatures he mounted, informed by his study of anatomy and observations in the field. He recreated the animal's layers of muscle, bones, and sinew, even their veins. And because animal skins could not be mounted on clay, he developed a process to use the sculpted model as a mold for lightweight mannequins of papier-mâché, wire cloth, and shellac. He posed these figures as he'd seen the living animals in the field, taking care to make the arrangement pleasing to the eye. He was, after all, an artist. He complemented his dioramas with painted backgrounds and faux foliage. As Akeley's skill grew, his career prospered. The Smithsonian Museum itself hired him to mount three Mustang ponies for the World Columbian Exposition in 1893. And in 1896, he joined the staff of the Field Museum in Chicago. Later that year, he traveled to Africa for the first time to collect specimens for the museum's collection. This was the start of Akeley's career as a prolific and reluctant big-game hunter. Between 1896 and 1926, Akeley made five expeditions to what are now Somalia, Kenya, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, staying for as long as two years at a time. His first wife, Delia Akeley, herself a formidable hunter, conservationist, and anthropologist, accompanied him on two of those five expeditions. During his 1909 expedition, Akeley attempted to film a traditional African lion hunt. In his words, full in front of me, the native hunters had drawn a lion's charge and killed said lion with their spears. But the motion picture, uh, motion picture cameras of the day were too slow, and he missed the shot. Vowing to never miss such an opportunity again, he designed a faster 
lighter cinema camera. Akeley patented his revolutionary camera in 1916, and it quickly made possible a new type of filmmaking. This, known as the Akeley shot, became a Hollywood standard, mounted to chariots for the climactic scene of the 1926 film Ben-Hur, and to biplanes for the silent classic Wings the following year. Akeley later used it to film mountain gorillas for the first time in 1921. The previously mentioned leopard encounter came during Akeley's first African expedition in 1896 to what is now Somalia. It was late in the day, and Akeley's search for ostriches had gone poorly. Scavengers had dragged, uh, dragged off the fine warthog he shot earlier that day, and the frustration got the better of him when he saw movement in the bush. He wheeled and he fired without a clear view of what he was shooting at. The snarl of a leopard told me what kind of customer I was taking chances with. A leopard is a cat that has all the qualities that give rise to the Nine Lives legend. To kill him, you have got to kill him clear to the tip of his tail. Added to that, a leopard, unlike a lion, is vindictive, he wrote. Akeley circled around the bush to get a better view, and the cat came for him. He shot three times, and through the light, and though the light was now too dim to see the sights of his rifle, he made out puffs of sand indicating at least two of the bullets had missed their mark. The third had struck only a glancing blow, further enraging the cat. Akeley hastily slipped his last round into the chamber and turned to meet the leopard as it leaped. But he was too late. The rifle was knocked flying, and in its place was eighty pounds of frantic cat, he wrote. Her intention was to sink her teeth into my throat, and with this grip and her four paws hang to me, while her hind claws, uh, while with her hind claws she dug out my stomach, for this pleasant practice is the natural way of leopards. The cat had missed its mark, however, closing its jaws not on Akeley's throat, but on his right arm near the shoulder. The animal's hind legs windmilled, but instead of clawing out Akeley's entrails, they could reach only air. Akeley now grabbed the leopard's neck with his left hand, and each time the leopard reset its grip on his right arm, he pushed it further away. In this way, I drew the full length of the arm through her mouth, inch by inch. I was conscious of no pain, only the sound of, cr of the crushing of tense muscles and the choking, snarling grunts of the beast. After some minutes of this struggle, Akeley's right fist was in the leopard's mouth and his left hand still on its throat, giving him room to hold the cat away from his body and drop to the ground, driving his knees into the animal's chest. Akeley pinned the leopard to the ground and drove his fist into its mouth so hard that it couldn't close its jaws. And then, for the first time, I began to think and hope I had a chance to win this curious fight. I felt her relax, a sort of letting go, although she was still struggling. At the same time, I felt myself weakening similarly, and then it became a question as to which would give up first. Akeley outlasted the leopard and staggered back to camp, where he posed for a photograph and saw that the specimen was properly measured and its skin preserved to be mounted later. It remains to this day in the collection of the Field Museum in Chicago. The fight with the leopard is only one of the many exploits Akeley describes in Brightest Africa. 
The book is now in the public domain and can be read in full online, so just Google it and you can take a read if you want. I haven't done so yet, but I do intend to. On the Serengeti Plain, he was charged by three rhinos at once, and in Uganda, he reportedly crossed a river full of crocodiles on the back of a croc that he had just shot. He was a keen observer of animals, particularly those species of which he was most fond, gorillas and elephants. Dioramas he made of both species for the American Museum of Natural History positioned the animals in family groups, and Akeley was keenly aware of their devotion to one another. He writes of the time he shot a large bull elephant as it stood amongst its herd. My old bull was down on the ground on his side. Around him were ten or twelve other elephants trying desperately with their trunks and tusks to get him to his feet again. I don't know of any other big animals that will do this. And yet, he shot them by the dozen. He killed only animals he thought would make good mounts, but if on later inspection an elephant wasn't fit for a museum, he left it to rot. After shooting the largest elephant he'd ever measured, a bull, 11 feet 4 inches at the shoulder, Akeley was disappointed to find that only one of its tusks was fully developed. I did not even skin him, but contented myself with taking his tusks, which I sold for nearly $500 without even going down to Nairobi, he wrote. So once again, we find a situation where a historical figure has incredibly contradictory and uh, hypocritical views. Uh, These are complicated figures, just as people are today. You can never really ascribe a full, full understanding of somebody to one choice or another. Another big bull nearly returned the favor on the slopes of Mount Kenya in 1909. The animal was almost upon Akeley when he sensed it and turned to see a massive tusk stabbing at his chest. Instinctively, Akeley grabbed one tusk in each hand and went to the ground between its legs. He drove his tusks into the ground on either side of me, his curled-up trunk against my chest. I had a realization that I was being crushed, and as I looked into one wicked little eye above me, I knew I could expect no mercy from it. This thought was perfectly clear and definite in my mind. I heard a wheezy grunt as he plunged down, and then, oblivion. A blow from the elephant's trunk broke his nose and cut open his cheek to the teeth, but when the animal bore down for the coup de grace, its tusk struck something hard, perhaps a stone or maybe a root, that prevented Akeley's body from taking the elephant's full weight. His ribs cracked like so many twigs, and he was knocked out cold, but he wasn't dead. The other members of the hunting party scattered, and rather than grinding Akeley further into the dirt as elephants are wont to do, the big bull gave chase. When the porters and gun bearers regrouped some time later, they all agreed the white man was dead. They sent word to Delia, who was camped some twenty miles down valley, And then they settled in to wait. Akeley came to some hours later, and the surprised porters carried him to a tent where he gradually collected his thoughts. My coldness and my numbness brought to my mind a bottle of cocktails, and I ordered one of the boys to bring it to me, he wrote. Next, he asked after Mrs. Akeley and was told she was on her way to him. In fact, Delia had got word of the gore... uh, mm, Oh, words are hard. Sip a rum. (laughs) 
Ooh, that went down hard. Delia had got word of the Goring at midnight and uh, rousted a reluctant team of porters to march through the night with her. Akeley ordered his men to fire his rifle every 15 minutes, and Delia's party followed the sound to his camp, arriving a couple hours after dawn the day after the attack. I don't suppose I would have pulled through even with, his, uh, even with Mrs. Akeley's care if it hadn't been for a Scottish medical missionary who nearly ran himself to death coming to my rescue. He had been in country only a little while, and perhaps this explains his coming so fast when news reached him of a man who had been mauled by an elephant, wrote Akeley, who had broken more than half his ribs and even punctured a lung. The district's chief medical officer came too, but he didn't rush. Usually, when an elephant gets a man, there's nothing a doctor can do for him, uh, Akeley wrote dryly. The same logic explains the porter's reluctance to lose a night's sleep on Akeley's behalf. He was bedridden for three months, and he was hunting again almost as soon as he could walk. But it was Delia who shot the largest of the eight elephants that formed the centerpiece of the Natural Museum of Natural—the uh, National Museum of Natural History's Akeley Hall of African Mammals. Still considered one of the world's great museum exhibits, the wing includes 28 dioramas depicting life on the Serengeti Plain, the Upper Nile, and the Virunga Mountains of the Eastern Congo. The wing opened in 1936, ten years after Akeley's death. He committed the last 17 years of his life to it, and he thought of it as his legacy. From the distance of a century, though, his lasting contribution was his, his advocacy for the gorillas of Virunga, which were the focus of his last two expeditions. He came first in 1921 seeking specimens for his groups. It was a difficult business even for a man who made his career killing and stuffing the continent's most majestic Words are hard. The continents, most majestic creatures. As soon as you have anything to do with the gorilla, the fascination of studying him begins to grow, and you instinctively begin to speak of the gorilla as he, in a human sense. For he is obviously, as well as scientifically, akin to a man, he wrote. Akeley was particularly taken by an old silverback he filmed and studied in the shadow of Mount McKenna. I am fonder of him than I am of myself, he reportedly said of the gorilla, the first of four he killed for his exhibit. It took all one's scientific ardor to keep from feeling like a murderer, he said after his hunting companion shot a fifth. He was a magnificent creature with the face of an amiable giant who would do no harm except perhaps in self-defense or in defense of his friends. Still, As he lamented the animal's death, he exalted the beauty of the scene. Mount McKenna had thrown aside her veil of cloud. Her whole summit was sharply outlined against the blue of the tropical sky. The warm greens and browns of the mossy hills suggesting a tapestry and lesser volcanoes smoldering lazily in the distance. Akeley decided on the spot that this would be the background for the gorilla group in his Africa wing. And so it is, with the big male that lay at his feet, right in the center of it. In his last years, Akeley regretted the killing he'd done, but never questioned the need for it. He returned to New York to work on his exhibitions, his pride of lions, his herd of elephants, his family of gorillas, and all of the other creatures that fill his hall. convinced of their value to science and to human culture. 
But after that 1921 trip, he advocated forcefully for conservation. And in large part because of his work, the King of Belgium created one of Africa's first national parks in 1925, which is now known as Virunga National Park. It is now home to most of the mountain gorillas in the world, more than 1,000 individuals according to the latest estimate. Akeley returned, uh, Akeley returned to the Virunga Mountains in the fall of 1926 with his second wife, the mountaineer and photographer Mary Jo Bakley. He fell sick soon after arriving and died of dysentery on November 18, 1926. He's now buried at the foot of Mount McKenna, just two miles from the scene he, cre he recreated in his gorilla group. I had forgotten most of that since I found this uh, this story, and uh, boy, that was a fun, fun read. Hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to get to another musical break while I take a break, uh, have a little sip of rum, stretch my back a little bit, and uh, consider what kind of snacks I'm going to go get after the show. In the meantime, this is Green Day with a little song called Holiday. I will see you all in three minutes and 47 seconds. Enjoy.
and gentlemen, this is our lives on holiday, and that, of course, was Green Day. Um, hell of a fun song. Uh, one of the things I love about doing music on this show is usually I, uh, while this song is playing, I sit and I read the lyrics and I sing along and I have a good time. But uh, I'm one of those people that I can't, I can't grab lyrics from songs just by listening. So I normally have to like read it along at least the first couple of times. Just one of those visual tactile kind of learners, not an auditory learner for any of you who have studied the psychology of learning. I don't even know if that should still current or accurate. Don't matter though. Um, great song. I enjoyed that. Very fun. Uh, moving on down the line. Uh, this is a mysteries of history segment. Um, segments don't really mean much on this show anymore. Sooner or later, I'll dial it in, but you know, what the fuck ever. This is the little man mine and the Pedro mountain mummy. This is a short story, but I think you guys are going to dig it. Oral traditions of many native American tribes, including the Arapaho, the Sioux, the Cheyenne and the Crow tell of little people who stand from just 20 inches to three feet tall. In some tribes, they are known as tiny people eaters. In others, they were known to have been spirits and healers, and some believe them to be magical. Similar to leprechauns or fairies, I suppose. In any event, the legends were well known among Indians across the nation long before Europeans set foot upon these lands. To the Shoshone Indians of Wyoming, this small race of people was known as the Nimerigar, and their legends told of the little people attacking them with tiny bows and poisoned arrows. The Nimerigar were also known to kill their own kind with a blow to the head when they became too ill to be an active part of their society. Though part of the legend, this practice, sometimes, uh, this practice of sometimes killing the infirm was also a regular part of life for many nomadic Indian tribes. Though many believe these little people to be only the stuff of legends, several discoveries point to the contrary. The most significant of which was a 14-inch fully formed mummy found in 1932. Called the Pedro Mountains Mummy, he was discovered when two men dug for gold in the San Pedro Mountains, about 60 miles southwest of Casper, Wyoming. After continually working a rich vein and running only into more and more rock, Cecil Maine and Frank Carr used dynamite to blast a section of the mountainside to get at the gold. After the dust from their explosion settled, a cave could be seen in the rock face. The small cavern was about 15 feet long and 4 feet high, and it was sealed off from the outside world by a thick wall of rock. As the men entered the cave, they were surprised to see a small, pygmy-like man sitting cross-legged upon a ledge. The tiny mummy was only about six and a half inches tall in its seated position and was estimated to be about 14 inches tall in a standing position. Its skin was brown and wrinkled, its forehead low and flat, features displaying a flat nose, heavy-lidded eyes, and a very wide mouth with thin lips. The face looked like that of an old man. It was so well preserved its fingernails could still be seen on its hands, and the top of its head was covered in a dark jelly-like substance that was still pliable. That was a terrible time to take a sip of rum. The two prospectors took, to fi- uh, took their find to Casper, Wyoming, and in no time scientists came from all over the nation to have a look at the mummy. Sure that it was a hoax, extensive tests were performed when professionals assumed it was a pieced-together taxidermy work. However, the anthropologists would soon be surprised to see that x-rays displayed a perfectly formed man-like skeleton. 
The tests also showed that the mummy had been killed violently. As the spine was damaged, a collarbone was broken and a heavy blow had smashed in the skull. The soft substance at the top of its head exposed brain tissue and congealed blood. After the tests were completed, the scientists estimated that the mummy was a full-grown adult who was approximately 65 years old at the time of his death. One odd finding was that its teeth were overly pointed, having a complete set of canines. These examinations were allegedly performed by the American Museum of Natural History and certified genuine by the Anthropology Department of Harvard University. Hey, the American Museum of Natural History features twice this episode. Nonsense the show. This is where you get your real history. However, alternate reports also say that when the University of Wyoming examined the mummy, the body was found to be a deceased child. Could that just be a dismissive scientist not doing their diligence? Or could it be the truth? Nobody knows. The mummy was displayed in sideshows for years before it was purchased by a Casper businessman named Ivan T. Goodman. When Goodman died in 1950, the mummy passed into the hands of one Leonard Walder, a New York businessman who died in the 1980s. It has not been seen publicly since, and its whereabouts are currently unknown. Other skeletons of the little people have, uh, have said to have been found in other areas of the U.S., Near Coshocton, Ohio, a burial ground was reportedly discovered that contained the numerous remains of a pygmy race of people only about three feet tall. In 1876, another ancient graveyard was documented as having been discovered in Coffee County, Tennessee. The reports indicated the cemetery covered some six acres and held the remains of thousands of dwarf-like people. Though the little mummy has been lost in history, it continues to be a scientific curiosity, and to many, only the stuff of legends. Allegedly, the Pedro Mountain's mummy brought bad luck to those who possessed it, and Native Americans continue to warn their people to be aware of the tiny people-eaters, who are still said to live in the mountains and high places of Wyoming. As to the prospectors who initially found the mummy, they soon returned to continue searching for gold. They registered their claim in Carbon County as the Little Man Mine, but it never produced the gold they had hoped for. Today, a sign still stands in Shirley Basins that signifies the location of the Little Man Mine and the supposed resting place of the Pedro Mountains Mummy. Again, when you find fun mysteries, that's what nonsense the show is all about. <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, we got another song planned for you because, again, I'm trying to stretch this show out because it makes me happy. Um, this is a song by a band called Kissing Dynamite, which I only learned about thanks to the television show Peacemaker. James Gunn has a hell of a musical taste, in my opinion. Um, Kissing Dynamite... Um, this is a song called Not the End of the Road, which just speaks to me at the moment. So uh, enjoy. Three minutes, 57 seconds. I'll see you for the Captain's Film Institute. Accepted. One of my favorite films of all time. In the meantime, this is Kissing Dynamite. Hope you enjoy. A soul beats down unstoppable. Wildland fires lost control. It's easier when you're kid. Stormy race of death 
The more I listen to Kissing Dynamite, the more I like Kissing Dynamite. <laughs> that's just uh, that's you know that's one of those songs that you listen to and you go, man, that uh, that's a little motivating. It feels like it should be in a cheesy eighty movies eighties uh, movie montage or something. But uh, that's a song I will put on in the car from now fucking on, and I will sing at the top of my voice with the windows down until I get to a stoplight when I'll turn it down and just sing it real quiet, like you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get to my favorite part of any episode of Nonsense, this show. That is, of course, the Captain's Film Institute. Anybody that knows me knows that I am a super movie nerd. I like films because they make me happy. I like films because they make me uh, they make me think and they make me dream and they make me laugh and sometimes they make me cry and they make me think about romantical shit and I just like movies. Movies make me happy. I like I like the movie world. So this is one of those movies that I have watched a billion and a half times. Like no bullshit. 500 to 1,000 times. No exaggeration. For a while there I watched this movie every Tuesday night. It was just part of my routine. Um, this is the uh, 47th entry into the Captain's Film Institute, the most illustrious film institute in the land. Uh, released in 2006, directed by a man called Steve Pink. Pardon me. Uh, starring Justin Long, Jonah Hill, Blake Lively, Lewis Black, and a bunch of other people you haven't heard of. This is Accepted. Rated a 6.4 out of 10 on IMDb. 38% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and grossing $36.3 million at the American box office. After being rejected from every college he applied to, Bartleby Gaines decided to create a fictitious university, the South Harmon Institute of Technology. That's right. Its acronym is SHIT, with his friends, to fool their parents as well as his. But when their deception works too well and every other college reject starts to apply to his school and be accepted, Bartleby must find a way to give the education and future his students and his friends deserve including his own, while trying to win the heart of the beautiful yet down-to-earth girl next door. (laughs) Um, This is just, this is a movie that's not winning any fucking awards. $36 million at the box office, even in 2006, was piss poor. This is not a movie that's successful. It's not a movie a lot of people seem to know about. But again, it's one of my favorites. It's one I can quote all day. Um, There's a few memorable lines from from the movie, um, one of which, and, and if I have to pick, well, as you know, every time we do a Captain's Film Institute entry, we pick three categories. There's a favorite line, there's a favorite scene, and there is a favorite character. Um, this is a movie that's hard to pick a favorite line from because there are lots of them that are great. Um, one of my favorites is Jonah Hill um, as Schrader dressed in a giant hot dog costume, and uh, he is on the quad of his campus, and he says... Ask me about my wiener. Ask me about my wiener. I don't know why that still makes me laugh. Maybe because I'm a 10-year-old at heart. But <laughs> I have, um, whatever, that's a fun line. That's not my favorite, though, but it's, it's up there. Um, there's a man by the name of Glenn in the film who is a, he's a weird guy. He's a, he's a fucking oddball, but he is a culinary genius. Uh, one of his, his lines is, I'm working with some very unstable herbs. Watch the movie. You'll see. Always makes me laugh. But the take it away all time top of the list favorite for the uh, for our purposes tonight. Well, what is learning? It's paying attention. It's opening yourself up to this great big ball of shit that we call life. And what's the worst thing that can happen? You get bit in the ass. Well, let me tell you, my ass looks like hamburger meat, but I can still sit down. I mean, come the fuck on. That's great, right? That's Lewis Black. Um, (laughs) What is learning? It's paying attention. It's opening yourself up to this great big ball of shit that we call life. And what's the worst thing that could happen? You get bit in the ass. Well, let me tell you, my ass looks like hamburger meat, but I can still sit down. 
That's a great little quote. If that doesn't motivate you, I don't know what to fucking tell you. Um, my favorite scene in the entire film uh, is, is, is essentially uh, the shit party. Uh, Bartleby Gaines singing the Ramones, showing off his dorm room to Monica, played by Blake Lively, confronting the BKE boys, having his little um, his little crowd pleaser, tough guy moment, um, and really just the entirety of the shit party. Um, I love it. I, I really dig it. It's the type of party I'd like to go to, and I don't even like being in crowds anymore. Uh, but there you go. Favorite character, the other category here. Um, if I had to pick a category or a character that I identify the most with, it's Bartleby. He's sort of the fumbling, bumbling, awkward, uncomfortable uh, guy next door, and you always sort of fantasize about being the guy who is sort of like the... Uh, you know, the sleeper hit who somehow pulls it out in the end is always successful because of his wit and his charm and his intelligence or whatever. But, um, but, but he's not my favorite character. No matter how much I love Justin Long, which believe me, I fucking love Justin Long. He's got a great podcast, by the way. You should check it out. Um, but if I have to pick one favorite character, it's definitely Glenn. Glenn all the way. He's the most interesting character. He's definitely the best weird little one-liners all the way through. Um, hey, there's my ex-girlfriend, Sarah Pelfan. You broke my heart. He's fucking great. Um, Maurice, the beverage ops guy. Watch the movie. You'll know. He's a close second. I just dig that guy. He's fun. Um, going through the list of shit I pulled off of IMDb that I thought was interesting enough to share with you. Um, Captain's Film Institute theme. I always seem to love movies that feature improvisational comedy, improvisational acting. Any scenes that turn out to be gold that were improvised are scenes that I'm interested in and excited about. Um, this is a movie that was all, uh, very much improvised. Um, a lot of the gags, a lot of the lines, a lot of the moments you see were pitched by the actors on the day of shooting because it felt right for the characters, felt right for what they were doing. Go watch the movie. It's a little disjointed, but it's a ton of fun. Go into it with low expectations. You're going to fucking love it. Adam Hirschman, who plays Glenn, his actual parents were on set during the day that they did the Parents' Day scene. Um, so they were actually placed in the film as his parents. So um, just a fun little cameo. Uh, the red fruits that Glenn screams at, what are you? Well, they're rambutans. It's kind of tropical fruit. I don't know anything else about them. I didn't bother to look it up. Since the school's name is the South Harmon Institute of Technology, the S word, shit is the most frequently used word in the movie. It's used 62 times throughout the entirety of the film, which is a pretty good record, but uh, Tarantino's got you beat, bitch. Uh, the character of Ben Lewis, the dean, was specifically written for Lewis Black. They were like, this is Lewis Black. It's going to be Lewis Black. There's no other person that's going to play it, so don't even fucking worry about it. As you find with a lot of movies that feature high schoolers, the actors playing them are much older. Justin Long, when he filmed, uh, filmed this movie, was 27 years old. And uh, Maria Thayer, uh, who plays Rory, she was 30. So they both looked very young. They, they, they pulled it off, I suppose. Um, and interestingly enough, and something that I need to follow up on, is that Bollywood, not Dollywood. This is not Dolly Parton. This is Bollywood. What's up, India? Um, Bollywood has a remake of this movie called... F-A-L-T-U, Faltu. That's all I know, but I want to find out more. If you know about that, write to me, beardandbones, gmail.com, beardandbones on the Instagram, uh, patreon.com, backslash nonsense the show. Pay me to do this shit, sucker. During the hot dog costume scene in which Jonah Hill shouts enthusiastically, Ask me about my wiener! <laughs> <coughs> forgive me i don't that shouldn't be as funny as it is to me still 
You really shouldn't. I'm a grown-ass adult man. I have, like, intellectual ideas and shit. During the hot dog costume scene, Schrader mentions how James Garfield even wore the suit with honor. Though not a member of the fictional BKE fraternity in the movie, James Garfield was in a fraternity. He was a member of Delta Upsilon International Fraternity. Uh, plus, the earliest possible date for the invention of hot dogs is sometime around 1870, and James Garfield graduated from college in 1856. Um, which, if you're good at math, and I'm not, so I wrote it down here, is 14 years before hot dogs were supposedly invented. James Garfield could not have worn that hot dog suit because hot dogs didn't exist, let alone enough incentive to make a costume about them. Um, instead, of attending Har- uh, instead of attending Harmon, as mentioned in the movie, James Garfield actually attended Hiram College in Northeast Ohio. He later went on to teach at Hiram and eventually became the president of the institution. You don't need to know that, but now you do, so deal with it uh bartleby's parents names are jack and diane this pays homage to john cougar mellencamp's 1982 single jack and diane which i i debated putting in the playlist tonight but um i just i it didn't fit my mom a uh, little bit of trivia my mom was a real estate appraiser she once appraised john cougar mellencamp's house somewhere in marin he was home at the time and she said it was very weird so take that for what you will stupid um it's never really addressed directly but it plays out over and over again that bartleby Gaines is a complete klutz and he just keeps like knocking into shit and breaking things and knocking things over and smashing his face nobody ever really kind of acknowledges it they kind of go are you okay and they laugh um i really like that it's never directly addressed it's just sort of a character trait of his and i assume that's something justin long came up with because he likes physical comedy and so he goes hey i'm just gonna do this and nobody don't worry about it i'll just do it Makes me happy. Um, Okay, this is some shit I wrote while I was watching the movie. Uh, This film speaks to me as a person who feels a little bit outside of the regular world. I'm a little bit disillusioned with the reality when I compare it against the world I was sold growing up. Um, I just, you know, even when I'm welcome and and in a happy place, I always feel like I don't belong and I'm a little bit outside of it all. Some of you recognize that. Some of you don't. It doesn't matter. Don't fucking worry about it. Bartleby Gaines is a guy who sees through the bullshit and the veneer of his world and he does his best to live a life that's authentic to him while avoiding things that are unpleasant, unnecessary, or unhealthy, which everyone around him seems to be pushing on him all the time. Um, He's willing to be an outsider. He's willing to stand on his own in support of his own goals and his own values. He's willing to take risks and he's willing to sort of go with it when he sees something happening and he thinks he can make something happen with it. Um, That's a guy I can relate to. Does anything else need to be said? I don't know. Write to me, (laughs) beardandbonesgmail.com. Sip a rum. Zip a rum for the shameless plug. Um, one of the questions Bartleby asks at one point, does, uh, did the system really work for you? This is a question I think we all need to ask ourselves from time to time, and, and I think we have a responsibility to ask the people we love this from time to time. Um, it's important to challenge the system. It's, it's, you know, something isn't right just because it's been there for a while, just because that's the way it is, just because that's the way we were taught or that's the way, um, it, you know, it was done before. It's important to ask questions. It's important to reflect on yourself and the things you can do to make life easier for the people who come after you. It's important to think about these things and challenge them and be critical when you approach them because um, we need to evolve. We need to grow. We need to improve on the way things used to be. 
So this is a movie that sort of addresses that in, in a fun, goofy, easy to dismiss kind of way. But it's a thought that occurs to me a lot. Did the system really work for you? And that can go for any system in your life, whether it be school or church or work or whatever. Um, as he finds himself deeper and deeper and deeper in over his head, Bartleby figures out, uh, that he's overthinking things. Not that that's something I can relate to. And that if he really boils it down, all of his problems can be solved with some simple listening and some simple creativity. The message and the inspiration in this movie still touches me, uh, the same way now after 16 years and who knows how many viewings, um, hundreds, if not thousands, it's an all time favorite film and it definitely belongs on the list of the greatest film repository ever, which is, of course, the Captain's Film Institute. (laughs) So I guess the only question I've got for you as we get ready to close this show out, one hour and 11 minutes in, um, what class would you add to the course listing board featured here in this movie? Um, Take a look at nonsense, see what you think, write to me. Beardandbones at gmail.com. Beardandbones on the Instagram. Patreon.com backslash nonsense the show. Um, thank you for tuning in. I'm going to try to keep cranking these out. We're going to get to 24 episodes in this season. I fucking promise you. Love you guys. Send me story ideas. Send me thoughts. Write to me. I'm lonely. Love you. Bye. will self-destruct in five seconds. Now, this is my job. I will not quit it. Pulled me out the depths when I thought that I was finished. Yeah, I question if I could go the distance. That's just the work, regardless of who's listening. Listening, listen. See, I was meant to be a warrior. Fight something amongst me. Leave here victorious. Classroom of kids. A revenue performing. If I'd done it for the money, I'd have been a fucking lawyer. Concrete, vagabond, band telling stories. Humble by the road, I'm realizing I'm not important. See, life's a beautiful struggle. I record it. Hope it helps you maneuvering through yours. That's why we stay in the lab at night. I've been staring into this pad for over half my life. A true artist won't be satisfied. So I guess that's the sacrifice. And I said, make the money. Don't let the money make you change again. And let the game change you. Uh, I'll forever remain faithful. All my people stay true. I said, make the money. Don't let the money make you change again and let the game change you uh, i'll forever remain faithful all my people stay true forget about the bank fortune in the mansion sitting in trip and watching myself on a plasma yeah i start slipping when i'm thinking about that stuff ego won't swole until karma catches that up that up how my grandma's number one grandson i lost myself to remember who that was we start thinking about some kicks, a necklace. What I really need is a job off Craigslist. Take away the dot com, name, love, fans. It's what if all the words on the bus. See, you keep the issues, but you take away the drugs. And I had to find out who I really was. Uh. 
who I really was and so sick of who I was becoming. Yep, tired of running. Time to look at the man in the mirror until I can learn to love him. Make the money, don't let the money make you change again and let the game change you. Oh, I forever remain faithful. All my people stay true. I said, make the money, don't let the money make you change again and let the game change you. Oh, I forever remain faithful. All my people stay true. Stay true, stay true.